You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Morning, lifers. What's up? You guys uh, ready to get some stuff done today? Yeah. Good, good. Sorry I changed you up. I didn't get the conditioned response. I don't even know what to do with this right now. Um, could start over. All right, before we get rolling this morning, I want to do a little something-something. You guys know that Paul and Logan are headed off to plant a church in Missoula, and uh, that's exciting, but it leaves a vacancy for us. Yeah, yeah. Leaves a vacancy for us in the Moscow Campus Youth Ministry position. And so we have been praying and asking the Lord who he would want to have fill that position. And we have found the person that we believe is that person. So I want to introduce you to our new Moscow Campus Youth Pastor. So here she is. For those of you that don't know, this is Emmy Salisbury. She has lived in Moscow um, all her life, 22 years. How about that? Uh, I said since Noah last service, and she didn't appreciate that. But her and John have been lifetime residents of Moscow, and um, we're excited about this. She's got big dreams and ideas. Let me say this to you guys. If you have ideas and, and hopes for our youth ministry, she's all ears. I know she's really excited about hearing your guys' input, but here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to go to her and say, here's everything that was wrong with the youth ministry before. It was this, it was this. Nope. Don't go to, she doesn't need that from you. If she has something wrong, I will tell her. That's my job. Your job for her is to say, we love you. We support you. How can we help? We're praying for you. You got to give her the support she needs to succeed because youth ministry is a very lonely place sometimes, right? So you guys love on her, support her. I'll tell her when she does something wrong. Okay, deal. So this is Emmy. All right. We have got to get started because we got a long way to go before the sun sets. Um, this series uh, has been a tough one for us, not in the sense that it's been disappointing, but because we live in this tension between people that are just like, you know what, just give me the application, like just the application. It's this big book with weird concepts and ideas, and I don't really even want to unravel the details. It's confusing to me. I don't care about any of that. Just give me the application. And then there's these other people that they care about Revelation, like every detail and everything, and it all has this. And, and I, you know, I get emails for every series that we do. I get emails of people you know, disagreeing with me or whatever, which is fine. I don't mind that at all. Um, Just as long as you do it kindly, I don't mind it at all. But uh, it's just kind of the nature of the beast, and that's okay, (laughs) the beast. Um, Speaking of Revelation, uh, see what I did there? But that's, that's neither here nor there. But 
for this series in particular, it's been worse than normal. And, and what I'm discovering is that we find these little bits and pieces along the way that people say about something, and we kind of just adopt it, and we stick it in there as accurate, and we don't really research it or try to figure out if it's just like, well, that makes sense to me, so that must be it. And then we start to bleed other things that we hear from other books onto it, and it's stuff that was never meant. And so what I find myself saying over and over and over again is this, show me the passage. Show me the, I've said this like a million times probably. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times to never exaggerate. I've said this a lot. Just show me the passage. Show me the passage you're talking about. Let's, let's, find, let's talk about the text. Let's find the passage that we're going to talk about so that we have at least a common ground of where we can spring from. Like those are the kind of things that for me, it's been an interesting conversation. We never told you that what we were going to say was the only way to understand Revelation. I believe that we are correct because, remember my central premise is, we cannot understand what Revelation means for us until we understand what it meant for the first readers. And so we've been adopting this text in its context, and that's important for us. That's how we've approached every book of the Bible that we've ever preached about. And so for us, it's really important. Now, if Revelation was a 21st century document, there's all kinds of places we could apply it. And it may or may not work there today, even, even as it sits. But what we can do is we can apply it in a first century context because that's where it comes from. So that's our task. And that's what we're trying to do. And this passage today, Revelation 13, is one of those passages where there's just a ton of traditional um, yuck attached to this conversation. And so uh, I'm going to give you what I think. I think we're going to uncomplicate it for us, and, and then we'll, we'll see. We'll see. You, can, you have permission to disagree with me. It just, I, I'm, I'm right, but you have permission to disagree with me. It's okay. And so, like, I, I can't, we can't, in a sermon, we can't tell you why we stand where we stand and then tell you why we don't stand in all the other places that are places there for us to stand. Does that make sense? We just don't have time to do it all. So I know that you guys have questions, and some of you that are like, oh, I care about Revelation. You have questions about it. That's okay. That is okay. Um, we're just going to stand in this place. And so we're going to do that. Now, in order for us to get into Revelation 13 today, I have to give you a bit of a history lesson, and that's going to help us unravel this whole conversation about the beast. Now, um, in the 60s AD, um, there is a general in the Roman army in the area of Judea, in Israel, in this whole area of Israel. And his name is Vespasian. Vespasian has tremendous amount of respect from his soldiers. Vespasian was a pretty good military strategist. He was smart. He was very successful. Um, he was a guy that was a leader of leaders. He was just this great guy. Well, in one particular battle, Vespasian got a wound in his head. In the middle of the battle, they thought he was going to die, but he kept fighting, and, and, and they won the battle. And, and they were like, like the, his level of respect from his troops, just like the legend of Vespasian was a big deal because he got this head wound that they thought he was going to die from, and he didn't die. And even after the battle, they're like, we don't know if he's going to make it, but he made it. He survived, and he went on 
to uh, do great things as a general. Now, the campaign that he led ultimately ends with his son Titus leading troops through Jerusalem to destroy the temple and then ultimately landing at Masada and the fall of Masada. If you're familiar with Israel's history at all, those are major pieces. Vespasian is a major character from the Roman side in the Jewish understanding of the world. He is a big character. Um, And so, he's very familiar for any Jew. Vespasian is a very familiar character. Now, when Nero died, right around the end of the 60s, when Nero died, history moves into what historians call the year of the four emperors, okay? So there were three guys that jump in and a grand total of less than six months, they're, they're unstable, they're not good leaders, they get offed very quickly, they're, they're just not good Caesars. And so then the Praetorian rises up, and the Praetorian is basically the Roman special forces. They're like the Green Berets of the Roman army. They rise up and they say, no more of this, Roman Senate, we want Vespasian. And through a very interesting series of events, Vespasian becomes Caesar, of Rome, and that matters because Vespasian enters a new family dynasty into the Caesar line. It's the Flavians. That's his last name. Vespasius Flavius um, is his, his Latin name. And so he is Vespasian Flavian. He enters the Flavian dynasty. And so that becomes the dynasty, the family line of the Roman Empire. That matters because when he dies, his son Titus becomes Caesar. He only reigns for two years, and then he gets a fever and dies. I say it this way because there's all kinds of debate around this fever that he got, and Titus's fever led to his death, and his younger brother took over the throne. His younger brother's name? Domitian. And as soon as you say Domitian had an older brother that was in the throne that only reigned for two years and then don't Like, you got to know there's got to be, there's a high potential of some foul play going on there, okay? Now, every Caesar had an advent. Advent simply means arrival. It's an announcement of their arrival. We celebrate Advent as a church every year, the six weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We tell the story of the arrival of our king. Does that make sense? It's what an Advent is. And so each Caesar made an Advent. Now, um, over the years, some of them, because of the size of the empire, as it got very large, they had more than one Advent. So they would have two or three Advents in different parts of the empire. Some of the guys that were really more full of themselves would have six, seven, eight, nine. Nine is extreme amount of advents where they go to these different cities and they're like, hey, let's party in my name. Let's tell the world how awesome I am. And and the cities really work to tie one on. Like seven, eight, nine advents for some of these guys, right? Domitian had 22. Yep. That's Domitian. Domitian was so full of himself, and he was such an evil man that when he died, and I'm going to butcher the Latin here, so please forgive me, the Romans instituted a law called Domnatius Memoriae, a damnation of your memory. What they did was, they, after he died, the Roman Empire, 
not Christians, the Romans, the pagan, evil, self-centered Romans went through the entire empire and anything, any place where his name was, they eliminated. Any place where his name was chiseled into a rock, it was chiseled out. Any place where his name was written down, the document was destroyed. They erased his memory. He was that evil of a man. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you some pictures, okay? By far, the largest advent that Domitian had of his 22 was in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus becomes the center, and I don't have time to explain how this all works. Come with me to Turkey, and we'll talk all about it. Becomes the center of emperor worship during the time of Domitian. And... Uh, they begin to build a structure that becomes known as the Domitian Gymnasium. Now, when we think gymnasium, we think basketball courts, volleyball courts, those kinds of things. In the ancient world, gymnasium was bigger than that. Gymnasium was more like university. It was the exercise areas, but it was also educational centers. So when you think gymnasium in the ancient world, you think education. This, is, this structure was Huge. Now, I want to show you a picture of the ruins of it in Ephesus today. So let's look at our first picture. This is the ruins of the, gymna the Domitian Gymnasium. It was massive. Historians said it would have taken 100 years to build this structure. They completed it in four. Massive amount of resources, massive amount of money, energy, going into this because Ephesus wants to make a statement. Now, if you look up in the far left corner, it looks like there's a farm field that kind of goes off to the side there. You see that? That far left corner of that picture, that is the ancient harbor of Ephesus. It's silted in today, so it's not there anymore. It's, the, this, it's way further out. But Ephesus was the number one port city in Asia Minor. It was the number one city for ships to enter and leave Asia Minor. And that's the port. Now, this, this is the remains of this gymnasium that's built right on the sea. In fact, historians record that this, this building went up so fast, it looked like a beast rising out of the sea. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's not a joke. <laughs> um, when you came to Ephesus by boat, the first thing that you see in Ephesus is the Domitian Gymnasium. The statement of where we believe our power comes from, but Ephesus wasn't done. They didn't think that this really illustrated the greatness of Domitian. And so at the other end of the city, they started to erect another temple. Today it's known as the Flavian Temple. Remember what family line Domitian's from? The Flavian dynasty. It's called the Flavian temple. Now, I want to show you an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like completed. Let's look at our next picture. This is what it would have looked like competed, completed. Now, this is facing away from the harbor towards the land. Now, there is a, 
uh, these pillars here, these are t 24 of the gods that are in the, pan the Roman pantheon, and this, the architectural structure here is very clear that the gods hold up Domitian, not Domitian supporting the gods. This is a statement. This top of this platform, there's this gigantic statue of Domitian, 30 feet high, with his arm raised like this. So when you enter Ephesus by land... Domitian, with his arm raised like this, is the first thing you see. So if you enter by sea, the first thing you see is the Domitian gymnasium. If you enter by land, the first thing you see is the Domitian temple. Now let's think about this for just a second. Last week, Marty talked about the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Say Satan. Thank you. Who's the dragon? Satan. In, in Jewish apocalyptic world, anybody who serves the dragon is known as a beast. Domitian is the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. See how that works? Now, I want to show you some ruins. This is to show you the ruins of this temple today. This is the top of it, the platform where the statue stood. This is where it is today. Now, if you look over in the left-hand corner, the left, upper left corner, there's some people standing there to give you a size, a reference to the size. If you stand right in that corner, and if you come with me to Turkey next June, we will stand right there, and you turn and look back at the temple, here's what you see. Next picture. And you can see the pillars with the gods chiseled into them with this architectural statement being made. This is what's left of the temple. The, they've actually found pieces of the statue, which is kind of interesting. They're, it's in the Ephesus Museum in a town called Cushadasi, which is actually the modern city that's just outside of Ephesus. Let me show you a picture of this. This is the head and the arm, the right raised arm of Domitian. That arm is over six feet tall. Now let me show you another kind of a cool picture. Who's that guy, Domitian? What did he ever do? Here's the irony. Here's the irony of this picture. My head is as large as the head of a 30-foot statue. Uh, so there's that. I'll give you a little something to think about. There's, there's two common truths for all great leaders in history. All great leaders in history only share two things in common. Only two. Number one, they were great readers. So if you want to have influence in your world, you need to discipline yourself to be a great reader. Number two, they all had giant heads. It's true. This is actually a verified fact. So good news. You are in good hands. <laughs> Apparently. So Pliny, the, the historian, says this about Domitian. Pliny was a first century Roman historian. Let's throw the, yeah, get that picture off. Domitian was the beast of the sea whose teeth drip with the blood of good Romans. This is how the Roman Empire viewed Domitian. Now, I want you to imagine that you are in a house church in Ephesus. And you see these temples being erected. This is profound. Like, what are we going to do? Because what happened for them was, in order to buy and sell in Ephesus, 
you had to do something that was very interesting. In Ephesus is the largest agora in the ancient world. Now, the agora, when you think agora, you need to think shopping mall. Um, More accurately, think farmer's market. It's exactly like that. It's a big square where people come in, they bring their goods. So if you raise produce, you come and sell your produce. If you'd make carpets or textiles, which in this part of the world is very famous, um, still to this day, best textiles in the world, they, um, they would go and sell them there. If you made pottery or if you were a carpenter and you fashioned furniture, whatever, whatever you had to buy and sell, you go to the Agora and buy and sell there. Now, in order to buy and sell in the Gora in Ephesus, you had to offer incense to the gods. Most historians agree that you had to offer incense in one of these two temples, either the Domitian Gymnasium or the Flavian Temple, one of them. In order to prove that you had offered the incense, they would give you some sort of a mark on your hand, most likely an ink stain. Think about like when you go to a concert or you go to a dance club or something like that uh, and you pay the cover charge or they, you, you're gonna, you go to a Moscow football game even, they, they stamp your hand to show that you've paid. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Now, think about this. You go to Domitian's temple who is the beast, and you offer incense. And at the temple of the beast, they give you a mark. What's that mark called? It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Here's a question, little house church in Ephesus. Do you take the mark? Now, it's easy for us to sit here in this room with our full bellies and go, oh, no. I would never, I would never. Okay, parents, stare at your little five-year-old kid who's starving because he hasn't eaten all week because you don't have any money because you refuse to take the mark and you can't buy and sell in the market. Do you take the mark now? What about last week when your best friends, they got arrested and their kids got murdered because they were Jesus followers? And they're getting suspicious about you because you used to come to the market, but now you don't anymore. What now? You take the mark now? You're looking at your own children who could very well be butchered. Do you take the mark now? See, I think we oversimplify this and go, oh my gosh, it just was easy. They just needed to stay the course. All they needed to do was just hang in there. No, it's complex. This is not easy. And it's with that mindset that I want us to enter into Revelation 13. And we're only going to read a small segment of it, and then we'll talk about some other pieces along the way. It's all in your notes there. So let's begin Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Who is it? It's Domitian. It's, put yourself in first century Ephesus. Who's the beast of the sea? It's, this is not complicated. This is not complicated. With ten horns and seven heads, yes, this is all about rulers and kingdoms. With ten diadems on horns and blasphemous names on its head, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. For those of you that really, 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 really care about Revelation, yes, it's Greece. Um, let's read on. Its feet were like a bear and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Yes, it's Persia. Uh, don't email me. And it, 
To it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Who's that? Who is it? Of course, it's Vespasian. This is not complicated. Like, we can make it all kinds of things, but think to the, the first readers, who's the one that's most famous for that? Mm. What, what, I, what I get so frustrated with is that we've made this book so complicated that people steer away from it, and I think this is a book that we need to understand. Like, we need to wrestle with the content of Revelation. Not to understand all the bits and pieces of the metaphors, but to understand the narrative. What is, what's the story that's in the book? I think it's important. Okay. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, it goes on to talk about, and I don't have time to read it, it goes on to talk about um, the, some of the people who refused to worship the beast were appointed to die by the sword, and by the sword they died. Okay, house church in Ephesus. You're sitting together going, talking about these, these two temples have just opened. What are we going to do? Domitian is coming. He's coming for his advent. What do we do? I mean, think about it. If all the whole city is required by Roman law to go out to announce his arrival, if we don't and we're caught back home, we die. But if we go out to see him, we're going to have to bow down. And if we don't bow down, we die. What do we do? And your children look at you and say, Dad... Are we going to get, are we going to die? Maybe. Now, Revelation 13 will go on to talk about the number of the beast. He's given a number, and it's a number like a man. This is the last verse, and it's in your notes if you want to check it and check my math. The number is 666. Now, there is a distinction in Revelation 13 between the mark and the number. The mark is not getting 666 on your hand. The mark and the number are not the same thing. Now, here's the big wrestling match. What is it? What is the mark? What is it? What does the number mean? What does the number mean? It's three sixes. 666. Again, this is not the first time that this number has shown up. Marty tried to talk a little bit about that last week, right? And, and I, I mean, I was, I was watching it going, Marty, wow. <laughs> I mean, I love this stuff, and I was like, that's academic. It was pretty heady stuff, right? If you were here last week, it was pretty heady stuff. Here's the deal. Three sixes. Six is the number of man. Three is the number of community, always. It's about empire. It's the number of an empire of man. And it always shows up that way every time that it's used in Scripture. It shows up that way in Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. It shows up that way in David and Goliath. It shows up that way with Greece. It shows up that way with Persia. It shows up that way with Babylon. It always shows up that way. Let text interpret text. But I want to land the plane today in a bit of a different spot. Because for me... It's not so critical that we understand what the number of the beast and what the mark of the beast was. 
I think it's critical for us to wrestle with how you and I take the mark without realizing that we're even taking it. Where in our lives have we taken the mark and didn't realize that we took it? Now, let me step on everybody's toes, uh, and you're all going to get mad, and here's the deal. If this was your mad, get over it. Um, I don't think football's evil. I don't. I don't. But let's be honest. Have we not made it too much of a priority in our culture? Like, I know there, it is not possible for me to care less about the WSU football game last night than I could, than I do. It's not possible for me to care less about that game than I do already, but I know everything that happened. Why? Social media, it's what everybody talked about. Did you see? They just see the And it was an exciting game. It was triple overtime. Man, like, holy cow, right? I, that's what I heard anyway. Got a guy punted. It fell off the guy's shoulder. What are the odds? Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow, it's crazy. Man, this never happens this way. This is exciting. I don't have a problem with celebrating that. What I have a problem with is that we get ramped about that, and nobody's talking about how excited they are to tell their God how important he is. There's a priority problem. I'll tell you a story. I, so I did a, I did a men's retreat. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the town, but it rhymes with Beattle. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. It was in Oakland. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but there happens to be a football team in Seattle that people have an affinity for. And if you've been a longtime Seahawk fan, you know this. You went through a lot of lean years to get to the good times, right? Right? There was a running joke about why Spokane didn't have a professional football team. Because if they did, Seattle would want one too. Like that was a real joke <laughs> for a long time. Now we're in the good years, and everybody's wearing, I don't care, wear your, I don't care, wear your jersey, I don't care. Nothing wrong with wearing jersey. I don't care about that at all. That's not the problem. Let me tell you the story. The guy who was leading worship at the retreat was a worship pastor at a church in Seattle, but he'd grown up in Oakland, so he was a Raiders fan, right? So, ah, you took the mark. Why would you boo? They're boys playing a game. So on his desktop of his computer was a Raiders helmet with a Super Bowl trophy from like 1920-something, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Whenever the last time the Raiders were good, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care, and I don't care about that. I don't care about that. So he has on his computer the worship set, the PowerPoint for, with the worship lyrics on the screen like we do. So we're in the middle of the worship time. And the guys, this is men, spiritual leaders in their homes, spiritual leaders in their church. And we're worshiping, telling the creator of the universe how important he is to us. And his computer decides to run a video card update. Because it's a Windows product, but that's another sermon. They're in Seattle. And so the PowerPoint shuts down, 
And there on the screen for all to see is a Raiders helmet. I don't care about that. Here's what I got upset about. These men of God who say that God's the Lord of their life stopped worshiping and booed. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That, that a, a football helmet takes precedent over how much important it is for us to tell the creator of the universe what we think of him. Oh, maybe you just did. Maybe you just actually did, no matter what words come out of your mouth, maybe your actions speak louder than them. Where have we taken the mark? And again, I don't, football's not the enemy. Don't be all like, I should have worn my jersey. I don't, I don't care about any of that. I don't care. I had a guy come out to me after first service and go, if, I, if it wouldn't have been so embarrassing, I would have turned my shirt inside out. And I, my first thought was, yep, that would have been embarrassing. And my second thought was, that's not the point. I don't, care about, I don't care about the jerseys. I don't care about you liking football. I don't care about you watching football. Watch it and love it and do it. But don't make it more a part of your energy in your life than God. Now, before we, I had a, I got to keep going. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep offending everyone. So let's set the, let's set the football thing aside. Uh, parenting. I had a guy tell, uh, have a conversation with me. This is a while ago, a few years ago, uh, a couple years ago. He was talking to me about his kids. And he's like, I don't understand why my kids don't want to have anything to do with God. And he's like, we read the Bible in our home. We, you know, we talked about God all the time, whatever. I was like, really? Well, tell me about your relationship with your son. Well, we, we, you know, we did this, we did this, and, and I was a coach for sports, and I, I thought that was such an important thing. Like, we spent all this time around sports. He starts kind of keying in on this big coaching sports thing, which isn't anything wrong. I coached my son's wrestling team. I loved it. It was a great experience for us. But he's, I said, really? Well, tell me about you coaching your son playing basketball. Oh, my gosh. He's so good. And the other day, he was out and we were playing a game. It was 15 points. And it was making, he was dominating. I was like, hey, I have a question for you. Do you act like that when he reads his Bible? Or do you only do that when he scores 15 points in a basketball game? Because it's not surprising to me, based on this little conversation that we've had, that your son doesn't want to have anything to do with God, but he loves basketball. What do we celebrate? Do we celebrate our children's compassion or their achievement? I think maybe we've taken the mark. We didn't mean to. We didn't, we didn't want to. But we made things more of a priority than they should have been. Like, after the game last night at WSU, the, the kid, people rushed onto the field. There was a mosh pit, right? Like, I don't know this. Somebody sent me a picture of it. I don't care about that. Where's our worship mosh pit? I'm not joking. Like, where are the people that are like, I have to, like, I get on Facebook this morning. Not one person told me how excited they were to be, to be in God's family in God's house today. Nobody. But everybody told me how excited they were about the football game last night. Like, there's a problem. There's a problem. Now, let's get, let's get off of sports because sports is one whole thing. That's an easy target. I don't think that in 2007 and 8, when the economy fell apart, that our Ephesian brothers and sisters would have gone, oh no, what about my retirement? Oh, nobody's laughing now? It was... 
I don't think that our Ephesian brothers and sisters would have gone, oh my goodness, hashtag not my president. I'm sorry, but we have allowed our culture to dictate things in our Christian walk that are simply not part of God's agenda. And it's not about the things themselves. You you have permission to care about politics. That's not the problem. The problem is we allow those things to be our source of security and not the God who holds the universe together. That's the story that our Ephesian brothers and sisters died to tell. That's why you sit in this room. Remember last week we talked about the two things that gave their word power. It was the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Their testimony made the weight of what they were doing powerful. Because it was about a God that was more important than anything. It was about a God that was more important than whether or not I'm happy, whether or not things are easy, whether or not I like where I'm at right now. And we need a group of followers of Jesus who will tell that story in our culture. We have whole theologies that say God wants to make your life easy. Really? I would love to have our Ephesian, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna brothers and sisters come and tell us about how easy their life was in following Jesus. That's as destructive as the day is long. I was reading on Facebook, because, you know, Facebook. Somebody said, God doesn't want you to be sick. If you're sick, it's because you have no faith. Bull crap. That's as nice as I can say it. Listen, we have been suckered into a culture that has fed us a lie. And it's not an open, bold-faced lie. It's not, a, it's not a, let me show you all the yucky parts of the lie. It's not that. It's not that. It's, it's a little white lie that almost looks like the truth. Because the worst untruth is the truth moderately distorted. Because it looks so good. I didn't come up with that statement on my own. Uh, I read it on the Davis Donut sign in Coeur d'Alene one day. If you guys know anything about Davis Donuts, that place is an icon of sage wisdom. <laughs> when I was in youth ministry, I did a sermon series one time called The Gospel According to Davis Donuts. They, like, they, it's a, Davis Donuts. The worst untruth is the truth moderately distorted. Like, that's true. Because it almost feels real. It almost feels real. I don't want to beat anybody up. Don't feel bad if you're like, but I can't wait to watch the game today. And I was so excited and I shouldn't have, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. What I'm trying to do is get us to evaluate, have we made the wrong things, the, the most important things in our life? And does our life show what our most important priorities are that come out of our mouth? And so with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. Uh, Maybe today the Lord's table is a time of confession for us. 
where we wrestle with what we've made improper priorities. If you're new with us, we have an open table, and that means that anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake, but we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together, and while they're passing those out, we're going to work through some implications. Now, somebody told me um, this last week, they're like, nobody even uses the word implications. What does that even mean? Sorry. Um, An implication is simply this. These are some things that I think, I hope you take away from this sermon. These are some things that I really hope that we land on with this sermon. There's probably lots of other places that you could apply it in your own life as well, but these are some places that I hope you can wrestle with, okay? Implication number one. No matter how much the world tries, the Lord will not share his glory. There are lots of Domitians in the world. There are lots of things that compete for our attention. But no matter how much they try, the Lord will not share his glory. Not with you, not with your ideals, not with your political stances or your uh, job aspirations or whatever. God will not share his glory. Next implication. Community is what sounds the alarm to the dangers of the incremental shift. Here's what that means. If you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you're going to get sucked into what I call a two-degree shift. I had the funnest conversation with my kids yesterday. We went and hiked Elk River Falls, and we were talking about demons and spiritism and all these different things, and, you know, it's totally this interesting conversation for people. And so we were talking about it, and it came up, and I don't remember who said it, but it came up that... um, well, why, you know, why is it that this, the difference between good, good spirits and bad spirits and all, we were having this conversation. And I said, well, think about it. If Satan came and showed you Satan as Satan, would you follow him? And they were like, no. I said, of course not, because if you could see Satan for who he really was, you'd never, like, you'd never buy that. You know, an alcoholic or a drug addict doesn't, go, man, I hope that I lose everything for this one day. No, it's just like, just one drink, right? I'm not advocating for or against alcohol. I'm just saying if you can't moderate it, it's a problem. Satan doesn't show himself for who he really is. He just invites you to a two-degree shift. I I I don't need church today. I don't need to read my Bible today. I don't need... I don't need to think about God in this instance. I don't need that. Not right now. Just a little bit. And what the problem is, is a two-degree shift way down the road gets pretty far apart. And pretty soon you're standing there going, how in the world did I ever get here? I never wanted to be here. How did I get here? Well, you got here because of compromises that you made way back. Right? Community around us sounds the alarm before we get that far. You need people around you. That are, that's why we do small groups. That's why you need to be in one. You need to have people in your life that can look into your soul far enough to say, you aren't doing that. And I'll be honest with you, just straight up, like I wouldn't be married today if I didn't have guys in my life that were like, no, you're not going to do the stupid thing. You're going to do the right thing. 
not going to destroy your family in a moment of, I want to be happy, or I deserve this, or I should have that, or what, blah, 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 blah. You're going to do the right thing because the word of the testimony matters. Next implication. Each person has to swear their own allegiance. I would love to be able to control my children. In fact, I'd love to be able to control the whole world, really. And, and, uh, <laughs> and let's be honest, it would be super dysfunctional, but we would all be happier. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. It wouldn't, wouldn't be happier. Here's the thing. I'd love to be able to make faith decisions for people. But I can't predict your struggles. I can't predict your, your section of the path that we have to walk. I can't predict it. I can just stand with you while you walk it. But you have to swear your own allegiance. What we can commit to one another is, no matter what, I'll be here on the other side. Last implication. There were consequences for taking the mark then, and there's consequences for taking the mark now. And maybe one of the major problems with why the church in America is not more powerful, more influential, is that we've chosen to take marks. We've chosen to compromise our faith, and we haven't called it what it was. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for a group of people to rise up and tell a better story. So what I want to do right now is just for you, don't, you don't have to say it out loud, just between you and the Lord, I want you to wrestle for a minute with what are the marks that you've taken in your life? Maybe you didn't mean to. I don't, I don't think anybody in here had ill intent. Nobody in here was like, you know what, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want. Maybe some of you are, but that's another problem. But I don't think most of us in here were that way. I think we were like, gosh, as I look at my life in light of this, there's some places where maybe I'm not taking my faith as serious as I should. Maybe it's time for us, just between you and the Lord, to take a minute and confess that to the Lord, if you're willing, and say, God, I'm not going to be defined by that anymore. I'm going to tell the right story with my life. So let's take a minute and be quiet with the Lord before we move into communion. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him this morning. The same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And Lord, I just want to say thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you love us. Come on, that's awesome. Star Wars themed ringtone during prayer, like. <laughs> oh Lord, amen. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>
We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 